You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey everyone, welcome in to the 5 Reasons Podcast. Thank you for downloading this in case you have. We wanted to use our Friday space to sell you on something that we've been working on quite a bit here in the Five Reasons Sports Network, and that is our patron feed. It's only $3 a month if you want extra content from us, although we are certainly producing a great deal of content. If you want a little bit extra, and also we're selling more immediacy at the moment. When the Heat play a game, when breaking news happens, we try to have something up on the patron feed immediately. So the way that you can subscribe to it is patron.podbean.com slash five reason sports. We'll link to it in the episode. Uh, so, by the way, thanks to our uh, podcast provider, Podbean, for offering this to us. Uh, it's $3 a month if you want to subscribe to extra content. We've been doing a lot of commentaries and a lot of extra interviews that we have had over the course of the last few weeks and reacting to breaking news. So, over the course of this episode, we're actually going to provide some of that content for free. We want for this to be the selling point, for this to be the way in which you're going to subscribe. Although, we're actually going to begin with something that is an original piece of content that we have not put on Patreon. Ethan Skolnick uh, managed to catch up with Mike Hoffman, a forward for the Florida Panthers, on what he thinks of playing hockey in South Florida, what he thinks of the Panthers and everything going on at the moment. So we'll begin with Mike Hoffman of the Florida Panthers. All right, Ethan Skolnick here at the BB&T Center with new Panthers forward. I guess it's still okay to call you new Panthers forward, even though you've been here for a couple months at this stage, Mike Hoffman. And as we're doing this podcast, uh, Mike has 26 points in 26 games had a big uh, point-scoring streak. The Panthers trying to get themselves back in the playoff mix, uh, getting a lot closer to it in their conference. And uh, first, Mike, I just want to start here. What has the transition been like for you so far? Not just on the ice, obviously, we're going to get to know new teammates, but just getting used to South Florida. Yeah, it's been great. Um, you know, I got acquired a, you know, a trade this summer. So coming in, um, you know, a whole new organization, uh, whole new teammates, and it's been awesome so far. The owner, GM, coaches, players, the uh, you know staff. Everyone's been um, you know nothing but uh, welcoming to me, and it's been uh, in a very easy transition. Obviously, it takes a little bit to to get used to a new team, new systems, and find your comfort level. Um, but I think things are going in the right way as of now. What was when you were acquired? What was the expectation level that was sort of given to you by? by Coach Bugner, by by uh, by Dale Talon and others in the organization. What did they say they wanted from you down here? Well, they knew I was a, a you know a shooter. That's kind of my uh, biggest asset. Um, obviously, uh, you know I got to be putting points on the board. That's my responsibility, and try and help out on the power play and five on five game as much as I can. 
Let's go back to the beginning here, and uh, I'm going to acknowledge I've been to some of these places because I actually I took a scouting trip uh, for the newspaper with Scott Luce, who used to uh, run scouting down here for the Panthers. So we went into a bunch of these little towns, but can you go through a little bit the, all the places you played in junior hockey and kind of what was like what stood out to you about those particular places? What's it for people who don't understand what it's like? What is it like to play at that level? It's like a little minor development league for professional hockey. Uh, you know, you're playing just as many games as, as in the professional level, but uh, you're playing against teenagers and, um, you know, they try and develop you and get you ready for once you do make that step into the professional professional leagues, whether it's the NHL or the minor leagues. Um, you know, for myself, I had to spend a, a good chunk of my career in the AHL to develop my game. and. Um, you know, I think it was a big, big part of where I am today. So I spent some time in Drummondville. For someone who's never been to Drummondville before, what is Drummondville like? Yeah, it was, uh, you know, re- really French city. Um, you know, so the language was a little bit difficult, but uh, all the hockey and the coaching was done in English, so that was that was great. Uh, the billets I had were bilingual, so they could, uh, you know, obviously communicate with me, and I was rooming with um, a player from uh, Montreal so he could speak English as well, another player that lived in Hamilton. So he was an Ontario boy, so obviously he was English as well. So, um, you know, that was put in a, a good situation for myself. How much French have you picked up over the years? Uh, yeah, playing in the, the Quebec League for three years, I was able to start to understand a little bit. Um, I can still pick up on, uh, you know, a decent amount, especially, uh, you know, if we're talking hockey-wise. Um, you know, so sometimes you can uh, catch the French guys uh, if they're <laughs> trying to talk about you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, was there a lot of trash talking at you in French? Just so, uh, uh, so not, not, to not right too away? much, but um, you know, if people are speaking a different language, it can uh, sometimes be there. Yeah, I was gonna say, uh, whose game did when you were growing up uh, as a kid growing up in Ontario? Whose game did you emulate? I uh, loved the Detroit Red Wings growing up as a kid. Um, you know, they were a, a very good team, so obviously easy to cheer for. And as a kid, that's what you kind of liked, uh, you know, the winning teams. But Steve Eiserman was my favorite player when I was growing up. Um, you know, a great two-way forward, uh, you know, won Stanley Cup. So uh, he was probably my favorite player. I always ask this question of, of athletes when they, once they get to this level. But when did you realize that you had a, a sort of a gift for this at, at at what age did you recognize, you know, this is something I can actually continue to do and, and might be something that actually becomes a career for me? Yeah, at a young age, I was uh, a pretty good player. So, but I mean, it's a, it's a long ways to, to get to this point. So you just got to keep working at your game. I always believed in myself and had confidence in my abilities that I was good enough to play in this league. Um, you know, just a matter of time and in developing my game and then getting the right opportunities. Uh, you know, there's a lot of good players out there that um, you know could probably be playing in this league, but um, you know whether it's they just didn't figure it out or given the right chances or opportunities, um, a lot of those things take a big part. Where did the shot come from? Like, I mean, how did how did you develop that? To be honest, I shot a lot of pucks as a kid. I was uh, you know really energetic and could never really be sitting still. So um, you know before dinner, after dinner, in the summers, always outside playing road hockey or shooting pucks in the garage. Um, and uh, you know just working on it as much as I could and then obviously uh, throughout the years continuing um, you know to to work on on your shot and and your technique and uh, you know how to use your stick how to use the the kick points and the flex is is a big part as well 
who was on the other end of that? Do you, you have brothers, sisters? Like, I mean, who who was absorbing the worst of that as you're shooting the puck all the time? Uh, probably the garage doors <laughs> uh, or any uh, fridges that were in the garage. They uh, would sometimes take a beating. Yeah, some of those had to be replaced. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a few, uh, a few of the garage doors did, uh, especially the ones going into the house. Go, uh, go now to entering um, the NHL. Obviously, you you were drafted, then you went back. Uh, I played at St. John, another place that I've I've been. To, I was at on that trip uh, that I went to. Um, so, what was sort of your welcome? Because you, I mean, you started right away scoring some goals. Um, you know, which a lot of guys don't do when they first get in the league. What was kind of your welcome to the NHL moment? Was there a moment on the ice where you recognize, oh, I'm here, and this is different? Yeah, I mean, I think I'll always remember even just my first exhibition game going out there for warm-up. Uh, you know, we were in Ottawa at the time at home playing against the Montreal Canadiens, and, um, you know, you're wearing an NHL jersey and you get the Montreal Canadiens on the other side. So I think that, I know I wasn't uh, an NHLer at that point, but, um, you know, my first kind of exhibition game and the taste of uh, of how it is was was a big um, eye-opener. And I know you said you, know, you always believed that you could get to this point, but once you get to this point, were there moments where you're like, oh, this is something I need to get better at if I'm going to stay here? Like what, what were sort of the maybe the flaws you saw in your own game when you first came up that you needed to get to a certain level? Yeah, my offensive abilities were always there. Um, you know, I was always a point producer, goal scorer, so that was uh, never really a question. Um, obviously, completing a two-way game and being able to play on the defensive side of the puck and being reliable in your own end and, uh, you know, knowing when to make the right play and, uh, you know, limit the turnovers as much as possible was a, a big, um, you know, step that I had to take in my game. We talk about uh, forwards who can play on the other end. Obviously, you play with one now in Barkov who's as good as anybody in the NHL at doing that. Is that more of a, a physical thing or is that more of a, a mental thing? Because sometimes they say, oh, I wish he was better in his own end, and, and the question is, does he have the physical capability to do that, or is that just an effort thing? I'm not talking about you specifically. I'm talking about NHL players in general. What what goes into that? I think each player has to find it for themselves. Um, you know, obviously for me, uh, you know, I'm not really going to be able to outmuscle too many of the other, uh, you know, defensive guys out there. So I need to kind of use my my skills as my ability to to strip pucks and. Um, but it's a, it's a bit of a bit of both. Obviously, you got to be strong in the puck at times, but uh, you need to be able to think the game and um, be able to read the plays. And that's why I think Barkov is is so good at the you know the defensive side of the game because he's a big body. He's got uh, you know a great stick. He can intercept pucks. He can strip pucks from guys, and he uh, he reads the game and sees it very well. So you come down here. Uh and season starts, and I know at first there were some line changes and trying to kind of figure out who the best combinations would be. What clicked for you where you go on this point scoring streak? Was was there something in terms of the connection with teammates, just getting comfortable here in in the room or, or in the area? But what, what kind of came together there? Yeah, obviously the start of the season, uh, you know, I, kn- I knew I had to establish myself in a new team and kind of find find my role and. Um, you know, it took a few games definitely for that to happen. Um, but to go on a point streak like that, there was, um, you know, a few of the games where you get a lucky bounce, uh, you know, for myself that ends up being a point. And um, those are the kind of things that you need to happen in order to make a point streak that long. Are you superstitious at all when you're going through the streak? Were you, are you one of these? Because I know hockey players can be superstitious. Yeah, not really. I, I tried not to be. I mean, I have a little bit in the past, but... Um, you know, trying to get away from that because it's just the you know mind game at that point. 
Right, and, and like you said, I mean, I think uh, with anything, I, I think when guys go through struggles the other way, you could be playing really well and not producing points, right? That's probably happened to you over the course of your career. When you've gone through slumps, when it's been the other direction, how do you typically get yourself out of them? Yeah, obviously, I think the course of a season is a big roller coaster ride. There's a lot of ups and downs. You know, you win a few games, everyone's feeling good, and, uh, you know, you're going to lose a few games too. And um, you never want to get your mentality, uh, you know, too high or too low. I try and keep myself at an even level. Um, you know, whether you have a bad game or a, a good game, you got to try and forget about it and, and move on to the next and learn from what you guys did on the ice and in the past and just try and continue on moving forward. One of the things, um, having been around the Panthers for a long time, I mean, I covered the 96 team that went to the finals, and then there's been sort of a drought here in terms of getting the playoffs consistently. As you look at the room, do you want to take more of a leadership role as you get more comfortable? Are you, are you starting to sort of feel that a little bit? Because it always feels like this team gets close, and then it's about a month left in the season, and there's games in hand. We always hear that phrase, and then falls just short of making the postseason. Are, are there things you see at this point that you can sort of help them get over the line this time? Yeah, obviously it's uh, it's never easy to make to make the playoffs in this league. There's so many good teams, and it's a battle every single year to get into the playoffs um so i think it's just the biggest thing is consistency we're, we're, you know getting the guys in the room to to be focused and take every game uh you know like it is our turning point and you know you need those extra two points three points that'll get you into the playoffs because as you saw last year i know i wasn't here but they're one point mm -hmm. one point shy you know that's mm -hmm. just a, a shootout win or mm -hmm. you know tying a game in the third uh to put you into overtime to get you that extra point so it is uh, very close I know it's still fairly early in the season but every point is is crucial all right I'm going to take you through some of your new teammates here and kind of what you learned I'm not as interested in the on the ice stuff I'm more <coughs> interested in kind of what you learned about them off the ice so far old man Luongo what, what have you learned about Roberto you can tell he's he's been around for a long time you know very professional has a ton of respect uh you know really nice guy he can crack some jokes too so he's uh you know definitely a guy that everybody looks up to especially um you know he's been hurt a little bit this season but every time he comes back it seems like it gives that extra um jolt to the team that's needed he uh he's got odd music taste have you come across any of that i haven't no <laughs> okay let's <laughs> ask him about that because it's all over the place uh barkov uh, have you been able to to bring him out of his shell at all a little yeah. bit yeah barky is uh he's an you know, next level uh, professional player. Um, you know, knows exactly what he needs uh, to get himself ready. Um, you know, goes about his business. He's uh, not the most talkative, but he definitely leads by example. Um, you know, he's constantly working at his game. He wants to be on the ice as much as he can. He spends a lot of time in in the gym and taking care of his body, which is definitely needed in this league. And uh, goes to show where he's had such good success. Is there one sequence, one play, something he's done on the ice where you? I know because you're you're focusing on yourself, obviously, but you're just like, oh my god, like that's not something that normal humans do. I think the biggest thing is uh, how he can strip pucks and get the, you know, puck going the other way from the defensive zone into the offense. So at me as a winger playing on his line, I'm always getting ready to if he does get that puck down low, I'm looking to to take off right away because um, you know we don't spend uh, too much time in our d zone when he's on the ice because he's is so well down low and uh, they don't usually generate too many 
chances when he when he's out there. So his defensive game is, um, you know, what I was really impressed by. He doesn't ever get called for a penalty either. It's remarkable. Like somebody who's stripping as many pucks as he is. I, yeah, it's just, the, you know, it's having a good stick. Yeah. Um, but, the, you know, there you would think there'd be more times than not where you have your stick in between their guys they can make a call for a hook or they might step on it but uh, he's really good with it so I think that you know goes to show you have a sniper's mentality you always have um, one of the only complaint I ever hear about Barkov from fans is that sometimes he needs to be a little bit more selfish do, do you that sometimes he'll have a shot but he'll pass it up I guess I assume as a winger playing with him that's not a bad thing because you're the recipient of that at times but uh, do, do you ever want him to be just more sort of take charge because he has the ability to do that yeah I think that's um, you know just the nature of how he is he is uh, more of a pass first guy unless you get him on a breakaway um, but uh, you know you're not really going to change a guy that much you can try and uh, you know give him teaching points or tell him to shoot a little bit more but um, you know I mean a guy like that, you just kind of have to let play and let his offensive instincts take over. One more, Huberdeau. What, what have you learned about him since you've been here? Yeah, Huberdeau, again, he's uh, a really good player. He's um, very crafty with a puck and uh, an excellent passer, as you've seen in the last couple of games. He's been uh, you know, on fire as of late, you know, accumulating a bunch of points. and um, He's you know, very smart, very poised with the puck, so it's a uh, you know, a good player to have. Def, you know, playing with him has been great. But uh, you know, whatever line he's on, he's always controlling the play and uh, making the smart plays and setting people up. All right, let's do some rapid fire here to close. Um, one goaltender that you see on a breakaway that would give you potentially the most trouble. Who, who's 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 the goalie you have the most respect for in that situation? I think Carey Price is one of them. Um, ben Bishop is another that I've uh, had struggles scoring on. Um, you know, so I've seen Ottawa played uh, Montreal a lot. So Price is, uh, you know, one of the best goalies in the league. So he'd probably be the number one. Uh, shootout situation. How do you mentally get yourself in in the right sort of mind space there? And and kind of what is your approach? Do you make your decision before you go? Is sometimes the decision made after you go? How do you approach that? Yeah, for myself, I think for most players, they know exactly what move they're going to do before they even step on the ice. Uh, you know, we have tons of video that we go through uh, before the game showing the other goalies' tendencies and what might be an option for, for us as we're coming down on him. So, uh, you know, we go over those things before the game, and we definitely have a, either a shot or a deke set in mind. After it, how long do you think about it? If you get stoned on a shootout, how, how, how long is it in your head? Oh, not too long. I mean, uh, you know, shootouts are fun, but, you know, there's not too many players that are uh, over 30%. So if you think of that, you know, you try to, that's what can make it a little bit easier on your mind. It's kind of like a baseball batting average, yeah, a, little, sure. a little bit in that regard. Uh, hold on, one more. Um, oh, yeah, this way. Hardest check you've taken at any level? Um,. Probably uh, the one I uh, separated my or broke my collarbone when I was in the AHL and, um, you know, had rehab. I came back and, you know, probably wasn't uh, ready to play at that point, but um, it was one of my first uh, 
first call ups it was in Boston and you came down came down the wall and uh, Dougie Hamilton just finished me off behind the net um, not a very big hit but um, still big enough that it uh, you know refractured my collarbone again All right, a couple of more quick things what should be your theme music when you score a goal <laughs> I would have to think uh, you know some hip hop probably uh, throw Drake in there alright so that's okay well that makes you millennial because that was going to be my next question yeah. you are a millennial what is the most millennial thing about you uh, probably I'm uh you know, one of those guys that likes to play a few video games on uh, on my downtime. I know they're very popular these days, so that'd probably be it. What's the video game of choice? Uh, Call of Duty right now. Okay, Call of Duty. So, you, so you're not you're not you're not playing NHL games. You don't you don't no, play with no, their no cell sports. phone there. No, no, no sports. No sports. No, I haven't played uh, NHL in in years. It's uh, you know more so the shooting games. All right, and you've been here long enough now. You have one restaurant recommendation in this area. Have you found a spot. Yeah, the this a few days ago I went down to a restaurant called Lobster Bar down on Las Olas in Fort Lauderdale, and uh, you know it was a great spot. I think that's my favorite one so far. And, and the adjustment overall, the South Florida just off. The, I mean, it's very different in terms of. I mean, in Ottawa, you're going to get recognized. I mean, you got recognized everywhere, right? Was that fair to say? When yeah, you yeah. Ottawa? Probably in Ottawa is, um, you know, probably once a day if you're going out uh, for dinner or to the grocery store or to the mall, whatever it is. Um, you know, more times than not. How often does it happen here so far? It's happened once since I've been here, and it was just this past week. So it's a uh, it's a little different, um, but you know, it's not a bad thing. So how so you were recognized? So how how does that come about? You're you're out somewhere. Hey, that's yeah, my coffee. Uh, you're wearing Panthers gear. Or no, no, no. I don't uh, don't wear uh, Panthers gear uh, away from the rink. Um, I was just leaving one of the restaurants uh, on game day after my pregame meal, and um, you know, another I think is it was about maybe 18 years old they recognize me want to get a picture so um you know definitely wasn't a problem so which extreme do you like better do you like the extreme of everybody knowing your business and and knowing who you are or do you like the extreme of being able to do whatever you want or is there sort of a happy medium that you'd like to find i, I think i like for myself i like it uh, better kind of flying under the radar and just go about your business um, but there is you know that happy medium it's not a bad thing when um, you know, people recognize you or want to come up to you and get an autograph or a picture. Um, you know, so I'm okay with either. And is there, are you a sports fan in other ways or no? Uh, somewhat. Okay. Uh, I, I, since living in the state, States now, obviously football's big, so uh, uh, follow that a little bit more. Um, you know, like to watch the, the playoffs are, are great in NBA and mm -hmm. baseball, but, uh, big golfer so obviously Florida's nice for that and our schedule has been extremely busy so I haven't been, had too many opportunities to play. What's the handicap now? Uh, in the summer it's around a three ah. so now it's uh, probably a little higher than that. What is it about all you hockey players? All of you can <laughs> golf. That's the guys from other sports, NBA guys go out there and it's Charles Barkley like shooting 60 over par. All of you, I Well mean, it's uh, obviously like the same swinging motion as shooting a puck and we get a lot of time in the off season obviously it's the summers that we have our downtime so um you know usually my routine would be work out in the morning and then you have the afternoon to to do something so usually i try and play around or so final thing and mike hoffman here again uh, 26 points first 26 games for the panthers trying to get him into the playoffs this year one thing about you that most people don't know i have two dogs 
<laughs> what are their names? Uh, Murphy and Maui. Where did that come from? Uh, from Ontario. They're French Bulldogs. Oh, no, I know that. The names. Murphy oh. and Maui. I don't know. Nowhere in particular. <laughs> Just keep the M's in the family. I got you. Yeah, that makes, that makes yeah. sense. All right. Mike Hoffman. Again, come check him out here at BB&T Center. Uh, one of the, uh, the really good acquisitions in South Florida uh, this year. And again, off to a hot start this season. Thanks for doing it, Mike. Okay. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. I want to tell you about another great event we're having for the Five Reasons Sports Network. And to me, this is our coolest event yet because this is the one that you can involve your kids in. You're not just watching the game. You're also watching them play. It's going to be at Gecko Parks in Weston. That's 3305 Corporate Avenue in Weston. This is a brand new facility. I've been there a bunch of times. My daughter loves to go. I feel like she's at a birthday party there every week because when parents come and see the place, they're like, yeah, this is the place we're going to have a birthday party. They've got trampolines. They've got dodgeball. They've got basketball. They've got games. They've got ropes course. They've got virtual reality now too. They've got great pizza and wings. And also they have rock Climbing. And here's the deal. If you show up anytime between 12 and 4, this is on Sunday, the 16th, this upcoming Sunday, show up and say five reasons, buy a day pass, and you will get free rock climbing against your child. This is a $20 value. You can challenge your child. Do whatever you want to do. It's going to be a great time. So we'll have all the games on Sunday ticket, Dolphins, Vikings, Gecko Parks in Weston. Now let's get to some of the patron content. We had a lot of good stuff this week, including daily recaps of the Miami Heat's West Coast trip. So we wanted to have you covered in case you fell asleep for the 10:30 start between the Heat and the Lakers or you know tuned off the Heat Jazz game after it was 40 to 15 after the first quarter. And that is actually where we're going to begin our friend Brass Jazz, the voice of the Five Reasons Sports Network. It was his turn to recap the game for Miami Heat beat, and so he decided to make a little bit of a turn with it. It feels like it's Utah. Utah Jazz, Utah Jazz. Beat Utah Jazz, Utah Jazz. Beat. Utah Jazz, Utah Jazz. Beat Utah Jazz, 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 Jazz. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Utah Jazz Podcast. I'm your host, Jeffrey Knoxville. And with me today, it's just me. Because everyone else in Utah goes to sleep really early. But I stayed up. Don't tell my parents. So tonight... The Utah Jazz beat the Miami Heat 111-84. to It wasn't even close. What was Miami doing? They weren't even trying. Their top scorer was Rodney Magruder. His name is whiter than mine. Folks, this one wasn't even close. Not ever. We definitely didn't look like a team that's below 500. We look like the Golden State Flippin' Warriors. We nearly had double the assists, rebounds, steals, and blocks. The Heat couldn't get anything going. Between you and me, it looked like the coach was trying to lose. Some of those lineups, I mean, woof. We couldn't miss. Miami was... <sighs> All right. Enough of the act. This game sucked. On paper, this seemed like a perfect thing for me to cover because I'm Brass Jazz, it's a Utah Jazz, and the Miami Heat have smoked the Jazz the last few times he played, 
and they seemed like they were trending upwards, like the Heat were starting to play well again. But in all reality, holy sh**, this was an abomination. Top to bottom, this was awful. There wasn't one moment of this game where I enjoyed myself. Now, I've said before on Heat Beat that this season is really weird to me because no matter if the Heat win or if they lose, people are going to find a reason to bitch about it. And I find that to be f***ing exhausting. But this starting lineup, man, like, I, I just don't get it. Dragic is out. I get it. He's hurt. Or they say he's hurt. But with the way that Justice Winslow has been playing lately, I don't understand the hesitation to start him at point. Not only does he say that he wants to play more point, but the numbers show that's where he thrives. So throwing Tyler Johnson out there is frustrating. And by the time Spo put Justice out there, they were already down like 10 to nothing. And all of the momentum was in Utah's favor. They were having to rely on a lot of outside shots because, frankly, they couldn't really get anything done inside. Bam was having a real hard time tonight. Basically, there's no way to spin anything good out of this game. It was just god-awful from start to finish. And it really sucks, man, because this team had been sort of trending in a pretty good direction. I mean, granted, Phoenix really sucks, and no one can out-tank Phoenix. They're just the bottom of the barrel. Um, But we still, you know, did a really good job against them. And then the Clippers, who are one of the best teams in the West, we completely smoked them. And it was feeling, you know, at, you know, in LA, it was feeling pretty good. And even with that Lakers loss, I mean, it was a three point loss. It was such, it was a close game. And we all know we can be honest. I mean, we're here for Wade this season. That's kind of what the season is about. But at the same time, I think we can all agree that if Wade weren't out there at the end of the game, we probably would have won that. Um, I'm not upset at that. I think that that was the correct call because that is clearly Wade's moment. This season is kind of Wade's moment. So you want to give him those those opportunities to be able to make a big shot. And, you know, he came up short in the end there. But it was an awesome game. I don't think anyone felt bad about that. So to come into Utah who is also a underachieving team compared to how they were last year, and then to just be this dominated. I mean, holy hell, man. I can't believe I'm stuck having to give commentary for a shit game like this. I don't know what I did to deserve this, but I'm sorry. I don't want to ramble on forever here, but... What I will say, yes, this loss was awful. And yes, the last couple games, that's obviously a small sample size to whatever's going on this season because we're many games under 500 at this point. However, I still think that this is a playoff team. 
um, a very, very low seed playoff team, but I still think we're going to make it. And I know that there's a lot of people out there that don't really believe in that. And they want to tank and they want to get a, they want to get a pick. They want to get a lottery pick. Listen, man, I get it. If we lose, that's fine. As long as the guys out there losing are the guys that you want to actually get minutes from. Now, in Spoh's defense, outside of Rodney Magruder at 29 minutes, the next few players with the highest minute totals tonight are uh, Justice at 28. You had Bam at 27 because Hassan is still out dealing with the birth of his new little tyke. You had Kelly Olynyk at 27 minutes, Derek Jones Jr. at 26, um, and Josh Richardson at 25. So the the kids did play tonight, but it's often kind of disheartening to have a starting lineup out there without your best team. And I think I could speak for most of us at Heat Beat and – we're just wondering what the fuck. And don't let this game fool you. Justice still better. Also this week, Giancarlo Navas had the chance to recap the Heat-Lakers game that featured the final time that LeBron James and Dwayne Wade will play each other in the regular season. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the very first edition of My Patron Shot. I'm your host, Giancarlo Navas. And with me today, there is nobody. I'm from the Heat Beat Podcast, and we are here fresh off Heat Lakers, talking about that awesome game. The final time Dwayne Wade and LeBron play each other, LeBron has the edge, 16-15. to 15. That game, before going into tonight, uh, they were tied. It was a 15-15 record. And uh, tonight was a tiebreaker for all the marbles. And uh, LBJ came up with the win late. I can't think of a cooler way to end like their tenure as opponents. Right, so you have Dwayne, LeBron guarding Dwayne at the top of the key at the end of the game. Dwayne needs a three. LeBron knows it. I guess that kind of made it crappy because, you know, there was like no threat of Dwayne going to the basket, and LeBron knew that. Um, But still, I mean, Dwayne, Dwayne heaved up a shot. It didn't go in. By the way, Justice Winslow had a great look to send that game into overtime, which I would have gone nuts. Uh, And Dwayne had a couple looks that were like halfway down with a minute left so man this season is only about moments like that like we're not gonna look back and because they were you know a tough first round out to you know the toronto raptors that's not gonna matter what's gonna matter is stuff like tonight like i know i'm gonna remember this and i know it's just a stupid regular season game but probably the two most important players in franchise history Yes, and I'm putting LeBron in that conversation over Alonzo, over Shaquille, over Tim Hardaway, um, over Udonis. Like, those are the two most important players in franchise history. And they're going at it at the end of a game, back and forth, for the last time. And D-Wade was awesome in that second half, and I cannot think of something I want more. Like, that's what sports is about. It's about those moments. It's about stuff like, it's about these narratives like that. And I know, yeah. Probably should Dwayne have played the whole fourth quarter? Eh, probably not the best decision. However, 
what's important here is damn that was so cool and who cares like it doesn't matter like okay yeah Derek Jones Jr. is guarding LeBron probably not the best idea um but whatever dude like that was a lineup that had the energy and it let D Wade cook and that's all that mattered you know um I did want to touch a little bit about Justice Winslow because if Justice has indeed turned a corner, and since Thanksgiving, he has been the Heat's best player. I mean, his statistics are, like, they're bonkers right now. Uh, tonight, he had a career high. He's shooting so well. Like, I am very confident when he shoots the ball now. Uh, kind of similar toward the end of last season where he was shooting the ball really well. He had a kind of slump to start the season, but his shooting is rounding into form. And his finishing, I think that's been critical because like he's getting to the rim and like making like tough layups like he's finishing with contact he's finishing over guys and if we look at the justice winslow experience i mean we can see a guy that a is a very good ball handler b a very good decision maker very good passer c the guy is an all-world defender he has the size he has the build he has the strength he has everything. He's a smart guy. He has everything but the putting the ball in the damn basket part down. And it would appear that he is figuring out the putting in the basket. Like, this isn't a guy that's like Tony Allen, right? That, like, Tony Allen was just, like, a severely limited player who's a great defender. Like, Justice does all, like, basketball things. Like, he can create, initiate offense, dribble, like, trigger, trigger sets. Justice is not one of those like defense only guys, right? Like Justice is a, like a good offensive player because he can create offense and dribble and get to the paint and penetrate. He just couldn't finish, right? So like he could he gets like all the way up until the end and then can't do anything. So the fact that he's turning a corner, like I remember on on our podcast, uh, you know, people wanted to make the Kawhi comp. And we always felt that maybe Andre Iguodala would be a better comp. A guy, like a Swiss army knife type of guy. And as long as he, you know, we're not, I don't think it's unreasonable to ask Justice to be an above league average finisher. If he's not being asked to do it that much, to pick his spots, same with the shooting. Like they don't need him to be Andre Iguodala in Philadelphia. They need him to be Andre Iguodala in Denver, Andre Iguodala in Golden State. And I think that's kind of a career trajectory that's, like, you can look forward to. Like, that's a guy that was an all-star. That's a guy that's, like, has a lot of talent. That's really freaking good. That's valuable. And justice on that contract looks to be that way. And I think that that's huge. I think that's huge for the organization. And I think that's huge for him. And uh, we're going to have all that and a lot more on the Miami Heat Beat podcast, which is you can catch it every week here on the Five Reasons Sports Network. Check out me, Alf, Brian, Alex, Kate, Leif, Christian, Nikias, you know, everybody on our crew, Brass. We have a whole library of personalities and talents. Uh, so check us out every week at MIA Heat Beat. And I'm Giancarlo Navas at GNavas103 on Twitter. Thank you all for my patron shot. 
we like to compliment him too much, but good stuff there from Giancarlo Navas of Miami Heat. Be check out their podcast. Now, actually, big news this week uh, centered around the Miami Hurricanes and their defensive coordinator, Manny Diaz, departing after three years as D.C. to be the head coach at Temple. Here was my immediate reaction after the news. On Wednesday, Yahoo and The Athletic reported that Temple is close to hiring University of Miami defensive coordinator Manny Diaz as their next head coach. I'm really happy for Manny Diaz. I thought he could have and maybe should have gotten the job his now predecessor Jeff Collins got as head coach of Georgia Tech. Maybe at Kansas State, a lower-level Power 5 job is what he deserved based on his work. I will say, though, I totally understand Manny Diaz wanted to take a job as a head coach because Temple has been a springboard. Even if Al Golden didn't work at Miami, he got the Miami job on evidence of his work at Temple. Jeff Collins just got the job at Georgia Tech. Steve Adazio got the job at Boston College. Matt Rule got the job at Baylor. Temple has been one of these springboard programs where if you have some success in the American, particularly given their history, you're you're getting a lot of credit for that. And so I totally understand that there there are there are two routes to getting a high-level Power 5 job. One is you continue dominating as a coordinator, uh, maybe getting some head coaching experience. I think of Joe Moorhead, who is now the head coach of Mississippi State, was a great coordinator at Penn State and managed to get that high-level job. Clearly, Manny Diaz did not get one of those jobs that he would have wanted, so he's taken the Temple job, which basically, based off recent evidence, has been a guaranteed springboard towards success. So I get it for Manny, and I'm happy for him. But when you look at for Miami... I don't think Mark Richt brought back the University of Miami program for a brief four-month period in which they beat Notre Dame, in which they beat Virginia Tech, and were ranked number two in the playoff rankings, and everyone was excited about this program again. It was Manny Diaz, because... Miami did not do that on the back of offense. Their offense, even as they were having success, even as Malik Rozier was doing enough, as Mark Walton was a really good running back, as they were surviving with Travis Homer, as Amon Richards gave you one out of six good games, as Chris Herndon and Braxton Berrios were reliable pass-catching targets, that offense was... You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Decent. It wasn't great. It was their defense. It was all the things that you've come to love about Miami and all the characteristics that are associated with it. The swagger. Obviously, the turnover chain is the face of it, but it's well beyond that. It's hitting with force. It's playing defense the way that great Miami defenses have played it, and then talking about how you're we're going to kick your ass and then kicking your ass. Like, that was their defense for the first 10 games of that season and why everyone was so excited because and I think back, and I remember a couple of moments as it relates to that. First is obviously the pick six from Trajan Bandy against Notre Dame. It's still, I, I, get, I get chills thinking about it. A smile comes across my face because it was such an iconic moment. I can't remember a stadium ever being that loud and I was in the arena for the Ray Allen shot. Now, I'm one of the people that left my seat early. I... In my defense, I was working. But 
I, I have not experienced a noise like that noise. And I remember uh, watching back the UM Virginia broadcast that when Miami scored a defensive touchdown in that game, Holly Rowe, the sideline reporter, brought a noise meter with her and said that the noise was like the, the noise that came from the stadium was louder for the pick six than it was for a deep pass that went for a touchdown for Miami in that game. The defense is what brought back all this feeling with this program. The aggressiveness. Miami athletes playing like Miami athletes in the style in which Miami athletes play at high school. And most of all, success. That identity. I, I think it can be overstated at times that Miami is a unique program. That these specific things that Miami were when they were good need to be the things that they're good at now in the present. There's a little bit of too much clinging on to the past and what, what made Miami good. But in the end, high school players in Miami are taught to play defense in a certain way. And the athletes respond to a particular way of defense. And as much as you can say that, okay, maybe if a really if Nick Saban came in and wanted to play Nick Saban's way, and Nick Saban's way was different than how Miami is, he would still have success here because he's Nick Saban. But I still think you, I think Miami fans can spot an outsider from a mile away. And I can't recommend enough going back and checking out on the Five Rings podcast here in the Five Reasons Sports Network, Manny Diaz's interview, because you can just feel it oozes Miami and the Miami story and what it's like to be a Miami Hurricanes fan growing up, going to the Orange Bowl. And he had, of any defensive coordinator that this program could potentially have, other than former players, more on that in a moment, of any defensive coordinator that is out there in the coaching pool right now, a deeper understanding of what it is like to for, for the Miami defense to be what it's supposed to be and the specific way to coordinate it to get the most out of it. I just I don't think that there are very many other qualified candidates to coordinate this defense in exactly the way that Manny Diaz did. And I think you saw with Mark D'Onofrio the complete opposite of that and what it can't look like. And so I think the issue for Mark Rick now becomes... When his offense has no identity at the moment, when I don't know next year who the quarterback is going to be, how they're how they're planning to win games, and how they're planning to bring an offense to this program that scores 35 points a game, which is a bare minimum in college football now, if you don't have that offense, and then you lose your identity on defense because you're losing part of your secondary, you've now lost your defensive coordinator to Temple, if you've lost everything, then what do you have? And is this program now fully regressed and is it really truly the fever dream over of 2017 and now you're kind of right back to square one because if Manny Diaz is what made it special again and he's not there anymore unless you bring in someone comparable or you bring in a former player that understands all this then I, I don't know where you go from here and so I, I thought Ethan Skolnick made a great point on Twitter which was why not give a former player I mean the number of defensive professionals that have come through this program how are there not a full factory line of pl former players ready to come through and coach this program. You have Mike Rumpf, who's part of the program now, but give Ed Reed a shot. I'm serious. Like I think Ed Reed, without any coaching experience, I'd love to see that as defensive coordinator of this program because, let's be honest, Ed Reed's not going to be a grad assistant. Ed Reed is not going to even be a safeties coach. I think give him a call and see if he wants to be the defensive coordinator and paying the same amount of money that you were paying to Manny Diaz. I think these are the kinds of the ideas that need to be brought forth because – Bringing in any old defensive coordinator from an up-and-coming school that played good defense last year, maybe has good ideas about how to defend the spread, I, I, unless you have that bedrock of Miami, 
I think you're up against it. I'm not saying it can't work because I think it's a little too naive and perhaps even arrogant to say that only Miami guys can work in Miami, but it's just such a built-in advantage that Manny Diaz had from the very beginning that I think that if he was able to bring in now, uh, that Mark Rick is able to bring in now, at the very least on that side of the ball, it still looks like Miami while you figure out the offense. But I I think if you lose the qualities of the defense, then it really is just every team in the last 15 years. And you look towards 2019, Miami was adrift this year. They're a program that offensively was so bad that they were able to ruin a top 20 defense. And it's probably even better than that by some of the metrics, by just the eye test. Miami had a damn good defense this year, which is why Manny Diaz is getting this job on the back of a 7-5 and five season. Miami went 7-5 and five and their defensive coordinator is being plucked away, and that just highlights what a good job he did. Programs are too smart to say, well, they were 7-5. and five. Now, If anyone watched this defense, you knew that this is a coach on the rise that had a speed bump at at the University of Texas where maybe he wasn't a fit for there. And maybe Manny Diaz won't be a fit for Temple, but I think he is more than deserving this opportunity unless uh, Miami threw a ton of money at him. I don't know how you were going to convince him to stay because it's a head coaching opportunity. And for upwardly mobile coaches, unless the Hurricanes are ready to get rid of Mark Richt already, which I don't think they're anywhere close to, uh, this was going to happen. Now, the question is, do you have a plan in place, a coach in mind that is going to prevent the program from going adrift? to being lost at sea. And that is the huge next step for this University of Miami program because everything that, for me, has really been built in the Mark Richt era can largely be credited to Manny Diaz. I'm sad to see him go, but I'm happy for him. Best of luck at Temple, Manny Diaz. And now I want to close with a couple of patron-exclusive shows. The first is with a South Florida media staple, we'll call him. You might not know him, but he is a cameraman that I swear to you, everywhere that I have been covering events, this man is here for Channel 4, Luis Zabala. They like to call it the goat cheese. He calls himself the goat because he's a fairly self-aggrandizing gent. So check out Ethan Skolnick and Luis Zabala with the latest on South Florida sports. Welcome back to the Five Reasons Sports Patriot feed. I'm Ethan Skolnick, co-host of the Five Reasons Sports podcast and co-founder of the Five Reasons Sports Network. Usually I'm with Chris Whittingham, but for our episodes of Goat Cheese with the Goat, Luis Zabala from CBS4, you catch him on the sidelines at Dolphin Games and all over South Florida as a cameraman for CBS4. Also check out previous episodes with myself and him here on this particular podcast feed. And we're going to do this quickly today. We're going to touch on three major topics in South Florida. Let's start with what's going on with Manny Diaz. Uh, We've got another patron shot from Chris Whittingham about this, but Manny's supposed to be introduced as the new coach of Temple at 3 o'clock today, Lou. Um, What are your feelings about this? What, if anything, could or should Miami have done to prevent this? Well, to be honest with you, my, my first thoughts on what happened with Manny Diaz were I couldn't believe it. Like, I couldn't believe he's going to go to Temple. But it is a head coaching job, and I can't believe that the University of Miami didn't step up to try to keep him. Because as we know, you know, in college football, sometimes your assistants are the ones that do a lot of the work when it comes to recruiting and finding the talent. And, and obviously their defense has been way, way above the offense at the University of Miami. Um, and I was kind of a little bit surprised that they didn't do a better job of trying to keep Manny Diaz. Manny Diaz is a Miami guy. I mean, his dad was the freaking mayor. I mean, the guy carries a little bit of weight in this town. The guy, he knows his way around here. He's very good. I'm interested to see how, how long he spends at Temple because, as you've seen, it's been a pretty big uh, springboard for a lot of coaches. But I was kind of shocked. I was kind of surprised 
that they didn't make a better run at, at keeping Manny Diaz as a defensive coordinator here. And all this talk about coaching, waiting, and all that, I don't like that crap. That, that stuff does not work. You, you, you know, yeah, look, Jimbo Fisher was coaching, waiting. And, and <laughs> how long did he last as a head coach at FSU? He got out of there. And, and so I don't like those titles of coach and waiting. I just, you know, I, I think money talks uh, when it comes to, to, to football coaches. And if your high paid assistants are being well taken care of, then I don't think you lose them. So I, I think UM probably could have done a better job of, of keeping Manny Diaz here. So let's get into the money aspect of this because that's been brought up to me for people who are inside the program that they've got some overruns. They didn't have a ton of money to spend. And of course, what's looming out there is that they really need an offensive coordinator. Like, yeah, I mean, I mean, before they lost their defensive coordinator, they needed an offensive coordinator. I don't know if Rick is going to go for that or not. I don't know if he can keep throwing his son out there as quarterbacks coach. Um, obviously, clearly that hasn't worked. I mean, three of the four quarterbacks got suspended this year and the other one right. wasn't very good. Um, so I, I guess what I'm I'm trying to figure out is uh, where does Rick and the program go from here? Because we just did um, with, uh, with Chris Fisher from NBC six, we just did our top five stories of the year in South Florida. And I had number three, Mark, the loss of confidence from the fan base in Mark Rick. Like uh, that has turned quickly. So where do they go? Where does he go from here? How does he, how does he win the fan base back? If, They've just lost the coordinator who was responsible for most of the success that they've had over the past two years. And as of now, there's no offensive coordinator candidate on the horizon. Well, I think the biggest issue that has happened with UM's offense is that their offensive line is just not good. And one of the guys that he brought in to supposedly secure that hasn't done the job. They're not getting good offensive linemen. They, they're just not good. I mean, I've spoken to people inside the program, and that's the biggest problem. And you know what? It's not sexy to talk about offensive line, but if your offensive line sucks, your quarterback's going to look bad. And if your quarterback looks bad, your receivers are going to look bad. And if your receivers look bad, your, wide, your running backs look bad. And guess who looks bad? The offensive coordinator. You can call whatever plays you want, but if you don't have the talent up front to run the plays, then look what – I mean, look at the, the situation with the Dolphins. They've been mixing guys in and out and have, have managed to survive with what they have, that's a good coach. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? If you can manage to survive with what the Dolphins have been dealing with, the UM's not dealing with injuries. UM's mm-hmm. just doesn't have the talent. It's just incompetence. Right, right. It's, 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 it's not, it's not injuries. Right. And, and, and there's no excuse here in Miami to not be able to recruit talent. I understand it's speed. Well, guess what? If it's speed, then play to speed. Mm-hmm. Don't play the pro style offense. Don't do that stuff. You got to go to the college offenses. You have the quarterbacks to do it. We we, we talked about uh, 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 Nikosi Perry mm-hmm. uh, when, when he when he started that when he came in against FIU. I, I'll never. I told you when he came in there, it looked different. Mm-hmm. The guy looked different. You could tell who the superstar was on the field. Now, is the guy kind of a little knucklehead? Is he is he a kid? You know what I mean? Well, you know what I'm saying. Okay, but who's, whose fault is that? Who's supposed to deal with those type of things? Well, your head coach, your offensive coordinator, your quarterback's coach, right? Mm-hmm. Those are the guys that got to keep these kids in check. They're the ones that deal with them the most. And they're and all Ricks. <laughs> they're, they're all Ricks. I don't throw it all on the head coach all the time. Mm-hmm. But in this case, the quarterback's coach is the, is the head coach's kid. Yep. He's responsible for those guys. And like you said, it's the group that has given them the most trouble. Mm-hmm. And when have you ever heard, well – Besides Will Greer, Florida, and I don't want to bring that up, but <laughs> when have you ever heard of the quarterback being the knucklehead? 
Mm -hmm. Right. No, no, it's a real issue. And, and I think what's a real issue, you mentioned recruiting. I mean, they had a guy here in Manny Diaz who was the perfect guy for recruiting. I mean, he brought back the sort of the swagger that we always talk about with UM. I mean, the defense brought it back, not the offense. The defense did. His the defense turnover chain was the was star him. of the right. program. Exactly. And that's him. And I, I just, you know, I, and I look, I pulled this yesterday at Five Reasons Sports, and 70% of, of Canes fans would prefer that Manny was the head coach right now. I don't know if he was ready for that or not, but, but clearly, you know, look, they got, they bought into the Rick thing last year. I understand it. They were 10 and 0. they gave him an extension, but I, I'm always concerned about these extensions that are given out at certain points because we see so many of them are regretted within six months. And I think this one is regretted. Let's move to the second topic here. And the Marlins, uh, we've got Craig Mish out in Las Vegas right now, posting on all over it, all over it, all over it, swings and misses. Check it out. He's on Periscope. I think he's a hostage somewhere in the Luxor hotel, uh, but he's posting all this stuff on real mood. So he keeps changing his odds a little bit because the players change here. I think the last we talked about it, it was maybe Braves, Mets and Reds in that order. He's kind of had the Braves sort of at the forefront. He's very connected on this stuff. He, he basically tweeted this morning that JT may not get traded in the winter meetings, but it doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. Um, he also had JT's agent on his podcast basically saying, you know, look, JT wants out. Okay. He'll sign yeah, an extension but, somewhere else. So how do you think this plays out? All right. Here's, here's what I've been hearing. And this is from sources in baseball as well. Um, I do have some. Um, it's a position where, Ethan, people are cautious to give big money to because it's a tough position, catcher. I mean, his, his agent is Buster Posey's agent. If anybody should know that, it's Buster Posey's agent, right? Mm -hmm. Look what happened. You think San Fran, you know, they had a huge contract. The guy, they lost him for a whole season. So now you're paying a guy for a whole season, and he's not even playing because he got hurt. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but I'm saying you got to be – everybody looks at it's a, it's a slam dunk deal. Why wouldn't you pay JT Romeo to all this money? Why wouldn't you? You know why you wouldn't? Because you don't have to yet. Because the team has control, and that's the way baseball works. Now, people don't look – the one thing that hasn't been mentioned is, you know, yeah, it sounds great to give him this huge contract because he is the best catcher in the major leagues right now, but there's a risk behind that position, mm -hmm. you know, and I think people – teams are getting smarter. Uh, they're, they're, they're counting the odds. The Braves caught lightning in a bottle with all these young guys, and their program got turned around real quick. Now, they can afford to do it because they have a lot of talent and a lot of young talent, right? So this guy seems like a perfect fit for the Braves. Now, the Mets, they've always been a, a crazy organization. You know, they're up, they're down, they're broke, they're not. So it's a little bit more of a risk for, for, for a team like that to take. The thing with JT, I think if the Marlins are smart, why not wait till the All-Star break? Mm -hmm. Why not wait till there is a team that says, man, we could win with this guy, you know? And then all these prospects that they're trying to hold on to, that other organizations are trying to hold on to now, you know, now you might be able to pry one away or two away if, if they really want to win right now. So why deal them now? I mean, there's no reason. And agents are always going to say what agents say because that's the best interest of their client. But JT, the bottom line is, if the Marlins want him to be a Marlin, he's going to be a Marlin because he has no other choice. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, he, he's not going to hold out. He's not going to sit out because his value, you know, who knows what happens to his value. Obviously, he's the best catcher, one of the best catchers in baseball. So I thought the deal – I think they'd, I thought they'd be able to make a deal because teams would be like, here, take whatever you want. You know what I'm saying? But then someone – you know, one of, my, one of my sources told me, hey, it's not that simple because of the risk involved in that mm -hmm. position. 
And it's something that I don't think anybody has brought up. You know no, what that, I mean? That, no, that's, that's true. I think the best point that Mish has made about JT's value has been the idea of the ballpark, right? So if you look at JT's numbers from last year, he was a much better road player than home player, okay, right. in terms of his power numbers. So I, I think what we may see here, and this is going to annoy Marlins fans to no end, is we may see a Yelich situation where the power numbers go up simply because he gets the hell out of here. And well, then it, here's and then another it's thing. Even worse. It's not that simple. It's who's around him right now. Mm-hmm. Right. There's no one. So there's no one behind him. Right. And he's well, coming and, into his own now. Yeah, he's coming into his own now. That's fine. Mm-hmm. But some of his best numbers when were, were when they had Stanton and yeah, Yelich right. and Zuna. And then he was batting what sixth. Then they moved him up to second batter. You know, they were moving him all around. But but he was surrounded by a lot of good hitters. Right. So, and he fell. And he fell apart. If you look at his numbers after the All Star game last year, he kind of fell apart a little bit after the All Star game. I think that what happened is that a lot of pitchers figured out how to pitch him in that lineup. So I I understand it. Um, but I think Mish made the best point before we move on to the Marlins, uh, move on to the Dolphins. I think Mish made the best point about this. He's like, okay, so as soon as they trade JT, the clean slate is there. Okay? He's like, yep. that's when it starts. He's like, everybody's gone. What did you do? Where are these prospects gonna? How are they gonna pan out? And I saw that Baseball America. I think of their top ten prospects. I think six of them have been acquired in tr- in these trades that they've made. So right. we'll see what the, what the prospects are that they acquire now. But basically, it is. He's like, look. The, the, the honeymoon is over at this stage. We understand it's going to take time. We get that. Okay, well, nobody's expecting 90 wins this season. But, like, the, the rest of it, like, uh, no, from here, you're being judged. Okay, from but here. But you know what, Ethan? I, I, don't, I don't even know why I came to this. Because if I were the Marlins, and I remember asking Jeter, and I, I, we brought this up before, I remember asking Jeter, have you reached out to the players, blah, blah, blah. He said, well, this year I didn't really talk to any players. I, I, stood, I, I stood back and watched. I thought that was a mistake. Mm-hmm. Okay, we should have gone to JT Romuto and said, "Here's our plan. This is what we're gonna do. In two or three years, okay, we're gonna work. I'll guarantee you, we're gonna be pop, pop, pop. If he's that confident about his, you know, his skills and his his direction of the ball club, and in two or three years, JT's gonna be 29, 30, okay. And if you're in your prime right there as a catcher, and and you and you have a chance to win here, they should have made him the face. They should have said, "You're gonna, but you're gonna, you're gonna be the face. You're mm-hmm. gonna do this." You're going to be in charge of bringing the culture here and doing this and doing that. What type of ball player are you? Are you that type of person? And they should have known then and there if that's the case. So it shouldn't have even come to this. Obviously, they have control of him, so they didn't have to do that. But I think they should have done that because you know what? The fan base here, it's what you said. How many people are smart enough to say, okay, now it really starts? Or are they just going to say, oh, wow, they're getting rid of JT Romuto now? Now what? Right. Probably probably the latter, Lou. Probably the latter. I mean, that's that's the way it works here. I mean, and there's no question. And again, I get that. And I'm going to understand completely the frustration with it. And a lot of it will depend on what kind of prospects. I will say this. They they have – there does seem to be a – I wouldn't say a bidding war, but they definitely have multiple teams involved in this. The teams have kind of shifted – Day to day, they should, but it's not. I felt like with a couple of the others that like where they were kind, of, and with Stanton, it wasn't their fault because there were places he wouldn't go. But right. like, but with some of the others, I felt like they're kind of competing with themselves here. Here, it does seem like they've got other teams. All right, let's switch real quick here. 
our number three thing here on goat cheese, the Dolphins. Uh, I'm calling it the shock at the rock. Miami Miracle does nothing for me. My, Miami Miracle, they're not even in I like Miami. The, I like the shock at the rock. I like the, sho- the, shock. the shock at the rock is better. Miami Gardens Miracle, you know, I mean, is more is more legitimate than uh, than Miami Miracle. We're not going to call it wait, that. Wait, did you hear? Did you hear our post game interview with Kiko with Kiko Alonso after? No. What did he call it? Did he say about Tannehill? No. He said Tannehill has big balls, grandes cojones. That's what he said, live on TV. Live on TV. Only on CBS 4. It was uh, a glorious I, moment. So, so how do they carry this over? How do they? I, I feel like they've created a memory, which is great. Okay, so in 40 years, yeah. just like the 72 team, they'll be dragging. Uh, who, who, who is the guy? Who is It'll the, be not, Greg Camarillo. It's Greg right. Camarillo all over again. But they'll be dragging Ted Larson back to talk about the block, right? Like the, yeah. the, who was the one with the block at the end? Because that's what they do. The Dolphins, you know, they live in the past for decades. That that's that tends to be their history. But at least they have a memory from this season. Um, now they're going to Minnesota to play a team that is not playing well. Just fire their offensive coordinator. Kirk Cousins has been, uh, you know, a, a huge guaranteed money disappointment this stage. They're not scoring. They're wasting a really good defense. But we know the Dolphins historically in this spot have been bad on the road. And under Adam Gase and Ryan Tannehill have been really bad on the road. How do they win on Sunday? Well, what, what I'm seeing is that the wide receivers are getting healthy now. Okay, the right, the wide receivers are getting healthy. The running game with Frank, I mean, Frank is is has been amazing, and you know they everybody asked uh, Gase yesterday, hey, so did you expect Frank Gore to do? And he said yes. And I don't know if he expected him to be this good, but but I'll be I'll give him this. He did start him, and everybody when everybody was asking why isn't Drake playing more? Why isn't Drake playing more? Well, Frank has carried the load. He's 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 been fine. You know what I'm saying? Um, so how do they how do they win up there? Well, the other question I was asking yesterday in the locker room to all the players was, did you guys watch the Monday night game? And everybody was like, yeah, we watched it, we watched it. I said, well, how does Seattle shut down that offense? Because all you hear about is Thielen and you hear about, you know, Cook and you, you know, you hear about the, the tight end and how good that offense is. And Seattle shut them down. I mean, that game was, was it was a total shutdown. And and they didn't really – they were like, well, you know, Seattle's a good defense and they were playing at home and, and you know. So I think they're kind of downplaying it, but I think they know that there's turmoil up there in Minnesota and, and something's not right, right? And this defense has been, you know, bend but not break. Let's let's put it that way because people put up numbers against the Dolphins, but they have a hard time scoring. They, 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 they've probably scored more on the damn offense than they have on the on the defense in all those, in all those games where, where they, you know – it, like Cincinnati where they blew it, you know, games like that on, on the road where they've, they've, they've blown games where they should have won against the mm-hmm. Colts. I mean, they, they played really well and they, and they blew it. So I think the health of these wide receivers uh, with Devontae Parker, uh, Kenny finally, you know, breaking out again. Uh, I think that they've, they've found something here where they've gotten Tannehill comfortable. And when he's in rhythm, and he's playing well. And the offensive line, they have a chip on their shoulder. You know, yesterday, Laramie Tunsil was, was arguing with Omar about, you know, I haven't really given up a sack. You know, that, that was a, you know. And, and, and so, you know, those guys are aware. Those guys are aware that they got to piece it together and, and be strong up front. And I think they've done a pretty good job with what they've, you know, with what they have. I mean, let's be honest. Look at all the people they've lost. Mm-hmm. And, and they're in the middle of this. And now – a game where you would think, oh, Minnesota easily favored. It's not so such an easily favored game now. You know, it's not like the Dolphins are are being counted out, which to me is pretty incredible with all the injuries that they sustained. 
And now with the running game, you know, you see a guy like Brandon, like Bolden come in out of nowhere and Gase admits, you know, well, I should have probably played him more. He's, he probably should have. Been, but how? How do you play him more when you're having so much trouble, you know, with the running game? Well, when you're also not even playing Drake. I mean, so, I mean, you're not using that many carries. And, and Fra- Frank Gore is, I saw the stat from Pro Football Focus this week. He's fourth on the, in their running back ratings. Uh, of anybody in the NFL right now, so I, I, I he always gets four yards. Yeah, I know, I know. No, he gets he gets what's there. He gets what's there, and and that is look. I, I will give Gase credit on that. I've been frustrated by the Kenyon Drake thing all year, but he he does Trust get. Me, he's on my fantasy team. Right? I, I, I can imagine. Yeah, but I I, I understand it because I, I get it because at least you want some reliability there. Um, but yes, Tannehill more comfortable. I know the Dolphins have been in this spot before. I, I just think. When you t- look at the totality of it, we've got a little carried away because of one incredibly executed once in a lifetime play. Um, but the offense did play well for the rest of that game. Uh, yeah, but you know what, Ethan? Ethan, think about this: if Kenny Stills doesn't slide at a yard short mm-hmm. of a first right. down, you don't need okay. that play, right? They're on that drive, that drive is moving. I mean, I was there. They were not going to be. They were going to score on that drive. All right? right. That was the biggest brain fart. All right, of the whole game, and then he has a chance later on to catch a third down pass and he drops that too so the miracle yeah i mean obviously i was already set up for post game you know i, I as soon as it, as soon as that pass interference got called in the end zone on uh, on minka fitzpatrick i mean there was like you know not much time left i had to go set up for for our post game so i watched the end of the thing on a tv screen with Bo camper underneath the stadium <laughs> right. So, Right. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's always crazy how that plays out. I, I remember being in New England uh, when when the Dolphins dropped that game. Was it 02 or 03, the very end of the uh-huh. season? And then the frigid cold with Alinda Mari yeah. kicking the ball out of bounds and Travis Minor screwing up and Fiedler uh-huh. going for Chambers three straight times. I think I was at a UM bowl game for that, like a meaningful one. Yeah, the, well, this one, that was that was one of the weirder circuits. And I remember watching it in a closet. They had like a TV in a closet because they sent us downstairs too early. Yeah. So that was a, just a strange circumstance. So I will just say this real quick here. We got 30 seconds. Uh, do they win on Sunday? I think they win on Sunday. I think they stop this whole road thing, and I think they come together and they win on Sunday. I mean, I just – I could see it happening. I could see Devontae Parker having one of those games like, like he had in, in Indianapolis – and putting it together with the other guys around him. You know what I mean? Not just him, which he, in that game, it was just him. So I can see it happen. I, I'm, I'm going to pick them also on Sunday. And I know that goes against type for me since I've been so negative on them all year. But I, I, Minnesota, something's not right there right now. Something yep. is, just, is, just, is just not right. All right, check out the next episode of Goat Cheese. I'm not sure when it'll be, but it will be soon also again. Was that Gouda? Was that Swiss? Was that, that was Parmesan. 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 We're, we're going Parmesan. It's the Parmigiana episode, uh, which, again, I have got some in my refrigerator. My daughter poured – it's like she doesn't eat, like, actual pasta. She just eats Parmesan with a little pasta sprinkled underneath oh, it. it. I got I got news for you. All kids do that, all right? Yeah, oh. yeah, I, yeah, I got you. I got you. It tastes good, Ethan. That's why it tastes good. I got you. Well, I'll get her some chocolate instead. All right, Louie, we will talk to you soon. Follow him at the Wowitos on Twitter. And we'll be back with you next week. And to close here, Ethan Skolnick wrote a book in the last couple of years on youth sports and the way in which that parents can interact and interviewed a lot of top athletes about how parents can better raise their children to play in sports. He's been doing a podcast series off of the book. Check out a little snippet of those conversations. Welcome into the Five Reasons Sports patron feed. I'm Ethan Skolnick, co-host of the Five Reasons Sports podcast and co-founder of the Five Reasons Sports Network. I'm also the co-author of a book called Raising Your Game with Dr. Andrea Korn, a book that we wrote.
wrote a few years ago, but all of it still applies. In fact, some of it still applies more than it used to. If you want to find the book, go to Amazon, just type in Raising Your Game Book, and you will find it. You also find all of the five-star reviews. We've done a number of these patron hits about youth sports today. We're going to focus on the parent's role in terms of sort of coaching your child through some disappointment, through some adversity, and what are the best ways to do this. And one example, Andrea, that I'm going to use to start, and then I'll let you touch on sort of the psychological significance of this, is Chipper Jones, who now, since we've written the book, uh, has gone into the Hall of Fame. I think we have like 22 Hall of Famers in our book now. Everybody we wrote about ended up in the Hall of Fame at some later stage. Um, and Chipper talked about a time when he was playing ball as a kid. He was in a youth league, and there was a runner on third base. His father was the third base coach, and Chipper was at the plate, and there was a there was two strike count, and Chipper basically left the bat on his shoulders, did not swing, and his father's attitude at that point could have been to scold him and say, "What are you doing there, Chipper?" Okay, I don't know if he was calling him Chipper or Larry at the time, but whatever it was, what are you doing there? You need to swing the bat. Uh, but he didn't get on him in quite that way. He was much more encouraging, and he just said, basically, you'll you'll do it next time. And Chipper, over the course of his career, always remembered that advice. And I remember the last at-bat, I think actually we, we talked right after this, Andrew, the last at-bat of his professional career, um, I think he beat out a single or, or reached on an error, basically, on a two-strike count, okay? Basically, a, a ball that he swung at that wasn't really in the zone, but he didn't leave the bat on his shoulder. And we have a lot of examples of that in the book, of coaching your child through difficulty, through adversity, understanding that things are not always going to go well. We see that every week in the NFL or NBA, Major League Baseball, that athletes, even the best, even LeBron James misses shots at the end. Michael Jordan missed lots of shots at the end. But I think it's the encouragement and what you do afterwards with a child that's so important. Well, that's absolutely true. And just to add on to Chipper's story, he also shared with you an example of when he was in ninth grade, starting high school, his parents moved and they sent him to boarding school. And he had come from a, a small town to the big city and he was at this very impressive school, and he considered himself this country boy, didn't know anyone, felt out of place until they saw him on the athletic field, and they saw what he could do with a bat in his hand, and all of a sudden, he gained all this respectability. All of a sudden, he became very popular, and all of a sudden, everybody wanted to know him, and, and what it talked about, going to what your example was, is that Chipper always believed in himself. His father gave him that confidence, trust in yourself. You can do it. And even when you strike out, there's always going to be a next time. And so Chipper carried that with him to school. And it's usually for kids, it's around the 10, 12, 14-year-old age range when they've been playing well for a long time. But when they start to go into early puberty and all kids start to develop at different ages and different stages and some kids develop earlier than others. Some start growing, you know, sooner than others. It's where kids all of a sudden start to doubt themselves. They start to lose confidence in their capabilities. And this is where a parent's support, love, and encouragement is so vital. Because anyone in any moment in time, especially in sports, as you said, even in a game, the best player in the world can be playing phenomenally and then miss a shot at the end of the game. And so it's critical for parents to be able to help their child learn to believe in themselves because what we're really talking about also is intrinsic motivation because that's often what propels 
a young athlete to want to get better, to do the best they can, to know that some days it's not going to go well. Some days they are going to struggle. Some events may be very difficult or if they pick up a new sport. But to believe in themselves that with hard work, practice, effort, perseverance, they can get there. And even Jimmy Rollins in this chapter that we're discussing, quoting him, he says, if you can teach a kid to believe in him or herself first and foremost, then the other stuff doesn't matter. Teach a kid self-esteem first, it'll go further than any coach or any parent screaming when they are giving instructions. Because as we know, negative reinforcement usually doesn't work. If anything, it ends up hurting and taking away from a young athlete. So I'll let you add on because I know I just sort of rambled. <laughs> oh, that's all good stuff. And, and I think that's, that is the key point is, is allowing the child to believe in him or herself. And how does the child do that if you're berating the child every time they make a mistake? Uh, and, and so that's what we're trying to get parents away from doing. And I want to cite another example, as I often do, uh, you know, with my daughter now that I'm, I'm with her every weekend, you know, at ice skating on Sundays and at soccer on Saturdays. And, you know, I've mentioned, I think many times here on the podcast, um, this other child who's in her soccer class. And this other child, you know, has a, a little bit of an attention issue um, at times. Um, but I've noticed a complete change depending on which other adult is watching him. So I, I've mentioned before that the father is there at times and is always in his phone, not to take pictures of his son, but just in his phone the whole time or walks out for 40 minutes. Um, the mother pays some attention, but she's paying more attention to the daughter. This past week, the grandparents were there. And I knew immediately that they were the mother's parents. <laughs> uh, because <laughs> This grandmother and the grand, both grandparents were there, and this grandmother watched everything that the child did, everything, and was encouraging the entire time. It is the best that this child has. We've talked about this on previous podcasts, but I got to see it for myself. It's the best this child has behaved in the soccer class the entire time. He knew someone was watching, and when he drifted off once, she's like, "No, no, 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 back." She did it in Spanish because Spanish, but she she got him back with with the coach. And again, I, I think that's what we're trying to say. It's not that you can't tell your child to act the right way around the coach. Obviously, you want to do that, but we're talking about the process versus the result, right? And I think what happens too often, Andrea, and other examples in this book, is that the parents get angry at the result. They get angry at the child not getting a hit, okay, or dropping a ball, right, or missing a shot, or not, well, you know, or all that, or letting a, a, someone on the opposing team score. Instead of, if you're going to get upset about something or, or instruct, it should be about the process. Why were you not paying attention, to the coach, not why did you drop the ball, okay, or why did you not do this? I think that's a key distinction. Well, it is, and what that often leads to is then performance anxiety because then the child may fear the next time they go out there, what if? The what ifs in the child head is what creates this feeling of doubt, insecurity, and starting to worry. And when the focus is on the worry, and not trusting in themselves, not doing the best they can, chances are it will interfere and hamper their performance. And next week, that's exactly what we're going to get into, is that there are many reasons why children could be afraid, afraid they don't do well, afraid they don't please their parents, afraid they're not going to be successful. 
And, and yet, if they don't have adversity and learn how to cope with it and deal with it and overcome it, they can never rise to their potential. Yeah, there's no question about that. And, and again, I, as you go through this book, I was just leafing through it as we were talking. As you go through this book, you see so many of the examples that the athletes gave me uh, when, we, when, when I was interviewing them was about failure, right? It's not most, – most kids don't remember every great thing they did when they were growing up as an athlete, but they will remember the thing that went wrong. And so as they remember that, the question again is, how did the adult react to that? And a lot of the same things we're saying about the parents obviously apply to the coaches. But we know, obviously, the coaches are dealing with kids they don't know, right, in a lot of cases. Like, you know, we talk about trying to get to know the kid. But, I mean, a coach comes in, the coach might have, you know, on a football team, might have, you know, 50 of, of the 50 players that they've got, like 30 of them might be new. It's going to be very difficult to get to know every personality. But as a parent, even if you have five children, I would assume you know your child right and so that's why we're kind of addressing the parents first like that's a situation you have more control over you don't have as much control over how a coach reacts all you can do is be present try to set the right example and if you see the coach acting in a way that the coach shouldn't be acting then you go about it uh that way one more example here um before we close Andrew about my daughter that happened this past week. So she's, I gave her these cleats. Okay. That she's not really used to, um, which I probably shouldn't have given her cause it's an indoor facility, but basically, you know, she wanted to try them. They're these, as she says, cute pink cleats. So she wanted to wear them. And so she's running around, not on the turf of the field, but it's sort of, there's a different kind of surface they've got right outside the field and she trips and she bruises her knee. Um, and the way that the coach handled that, I thought was perfect because my daughter is limping around and this and that. And the coach was like, look, if, if you don't want to play right now, that's okay. Uh, if you want to wait till it gets better, but why don't you sit here and watch your teammates, uh, play. And so my daughter watched for a while and she's complaining about her knee. And then after a little while she got up and she ran out there. And I just thought the way that the coach approached that, not, not like get up and get to your spot or something like that, or, or you're not that hurt, you know, or something like along those lines. It was, all right, take your own time. I'm going to let you watch your teammates. And I'm, I'm betting that your knee's not so bad that you're not going to want to play. Okay. And that's, that's basically what ended up happening last week. So again, I think so much of this, Andrea, I'll let you have the last word on this, but I think so much of this is just, it's demeanor, it's tone, um, and it's letting the child know that it's okay in a certain situation to not always perform at the best or not always, you know, feel your best, but to basically do as much as you possibly can. Well, just to add, that coach was very attuned and somehow knew your daughter well enough that he supported the fact that take this time out, you know, see if you can regroup and come back on the court or on the field. And if you can, great. But if you can't, it's okay. You can still, you're still part of the team. You support your teammates by being on the bench. And sometimes that's where a player has to be available to help their teammates. But also a coach has to realize that Every player is coming from a different home, a different environment, a different culture, a different background, a different orientation to sports, and it does make it more complicated, but to have a coach who can be empathic, who can be understanding, who can be attuned and sensitive to what a child needs and was very attuned to your child, so he did exactly what was needed at that moment, which is beautiful. Yeah, no question about it. And so we'll get more to you next week here at Raising Your Game. Again, check out the Twitter handle at RYG Book. I'm going to be a little bit better about posting from that. Also check out at Ethan J. Skolnick, at Five Reasons Sports, and at Doc Acorn. 
and buy the book. Uh, that's what we really want you to do because it, it's easier to follow along with what we're doing uh, if you have the book with you and can sort of follow around chapter by chapter. We made it easier for you to kind of take you through the process from being a baby all the way up through youth sports until a kid is in high school. We will talk to you soon. for listening to the Fire Ringer Podcast. Thank you so much. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.